Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Amanda uh, and she works in education in Southeast Asian, uh, in Southeast Asian countries, uh, Myanmar, Thailand, various other places and uh, delivering uh, education programs to mainly remote and rural communities. We had a really fascinating conversation about that, about uh, the difficulties of that, the challenges of that and where that kind of work intersects with modern Western discourses about things like colonialism and uh, cultural appropriation and cultural sensitivity. So uh, I hope you enjoy listening to it. I really enjoyed having this conversation. She is not a performer, but I think just an incredibly interesting person. And I like to have non-performers on here, even if they're not as used to holding a microphone particularly ones who have as interesting things to say as Amanda did. So uh, there are a few planes going by in the background um, that was inevitable given where I could meet her, but I think they don't interfere with the conversation and I hope you um, let me know if they do and I'll, I'll see. Uh, I won't do that anymore. Sometimes I get the opportunity to speak to somebody and it's not in ideal audio situations. I don't mind a bit of kind of tea house ambience myself, but if those things really bother you, do let me know. Um, email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com or hit me up on my Patreon or on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. I did get a question from one of my Patreon subscribers and uh, it was, can you recommend Christmas presents for me? Um, and I I do have some recommendations. Obviously, uh, if you want to get a Christmas present for me, Alice Fraser, you can just um, subscribe to the Patreon, or uh, you can buy um, Tea with Alice Tea, which is on the website and various other little bits and pieces of merch, um, or you know just download the trilogy if you'd like to get me a present that doesn't involve any money on your part. Uh, but if you want to get presents for your friend, I have a few friends who've put out books recently. And they, I think, would make really good stocking stuffers or presents for yourself. Um, my friend Roderick Makem has published his book Pop and Jay's Beverage Emporium, which is like um, it's like the American gods of the Australian outback. And Rod is an interesting cat. He used to be a journalist and uh, worked for a country newspaper and then ended up going freelance and travelling the world on an extremely small budget, writing freelance journalistic pieces and his novel. And this thing has been published. I hope you really enjoy uh, it. It's available on, I think, all reputable online booksellers. Um, Roderick Makem, Pop and Jay's Beverage Emporium is that. Elias Grieg, who is a friend of mine from university, has written a book called I Can't Remember the Title, but the cover is Blue, which is a hilarious book, and it is about his experiences as a bookseller. He's really smart, really funny. They're these sort of vignettes of his life inter interacting with customers either poignantly or annoyingly and, and it came out of just he would write these Facebook status updates which I always look forward to reading and just wonderfully wonderfully witty wordy things and then he got commissioned for a book which I think is utterly fantastic um I I should comment on the trilogy which has been not quite laureled, lauded, I don't know. Um, it came out, an email came out with the iTunes um, best podcasts of the year in Australia, most listened to podcasts in the year and the editor's choice podcasts of the year 
of which the editor's choice um I was listed there and uh, well I not tea with Alice but the trilogy and that's a an incredible thing for me I I um I kind of wept in a cafe um just be I don't know why because it's never been that important to me to get kind of institutional uh, applause for things that I do I just as long as the people who are in the room with me um are okay then I I feel good about what I'm doing or that there's a certain number of people who like what I'm doing enough that I can keep doing it but this the trilogy meant a lot and it was I was kind of out on a limb with it I wanted to do like various kind of out there things with it including the kind of binaural mics um, where you listen to it on cans and it feels immersive that was a, a kind of a new thing and I pushed for that and I pushed for various other things I pushed to do it as a three-hour show rather than recording it on three separate nights uh, because I wanted that feeling even as I get more ragged through the performances I wanted it to be this all of a piece thing I fought so many battles to get that I'm including the battle to keep them all as one hour um, pieces that I lost that battle but um, and I the reason I'm talking about this and the reason that I fought so hard for these things is in part because of you um, listening I've been doing Tea with Alice for a while and getting your emails and getting your comments and your support for this thing that I'm doing that's kind of weird, it's not mainstream, it's not normal, um, it's not marketable, it's not commercial, but it is interesting. I think it's interesting and I think it's worthwhile. And then having the Patreon subscribers supporting me in this kind of, you know, they support they're supporting my work, what I want to do, not a particular piece of work. It's not a Kickstarter. It's a, it's a, it's a patronage, and I think that gave me, in part, the confidence to really, to really push for things that I thought were was inter- were interesting, and that is so valuable. That's such a valuable thing, and I don't know whether it has to do with gender, or uh, just my personality, or my upbringing, or whatever, but. I'm I'm not a person who often will push unless I really believe in a thing and often when it's something that it just has to do with my feelings I'll I'll back down or I'll fold because I feel strong in myself and I don't think my feelings are necessarily important in a circumstance or they can fold to uh, facts or data or you know somebody else's feelings um, and in this instance with 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 the trilogy they didn't, um, and the, that is due to your support. So I'm, I'm rambling, and I'm not articulating myself particularly well. But I hope that I have communicated that gratitude. That that it is a real thing. That you have helped me to create a real thing by your support, whether it is just listening, whether it's just sending me an email, whether it's telling me that you like my work, whether it's coming to one of my shows, whether it's supporting me on Patreon. They've given me a foundation to do something that I'm really proud of and that other people like. So enough of this sappy stuff. Have a lovely uh, end-of-year Christmas, whatever you do, celebration, and um, I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. (laughs) 
So, who are you and what are you drinking? Hi, I'm Amanda and I'm about to open a bottle of soda water. Mm -hmm. I might put some lime in that. That's fair, that's (laughs) fair. I shall open some soda water myself. Um, Oh, it's overflowed slightly, I'm sorry. I've ruined everything. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So what have you been wrestling with recently? Um... Maybe two things probably come to mind. One is to do with a lot of geographical moving around, I suppose, and trying to live sanely maybe in in a lot of different places. Um, And especially based here in Thailand, how can I be doing more than just using the country as a base when actually in a way more of my heart is probably in the countries around Thailand where I'll actually be working which is the reason why I'm here much as I love it here so there's that sense of excitement but fragmentation maybe yeah so you travel a lot is for your work yes I um, work as a do you want to tip that into a larger glass? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I work um, in the, well, broadly in the education sector, and for quite a long time I've been mostly doing freelance work, um, which is always quite difficult to capture when friends and relatives are asking what it involves, um, because it's quite broad, but it's usually working with ministries of education or sometimes NGOs or development agencies or occasionally teacher training colleges. So it's normally working um, with people to develop aspects of education policy. Usually in what kinds of countries? In so-called developing countries, mostly in Asia, because that's been my preference over the years to focus on a few countries and go deeper rather than try try to sort of go superficially and learn about too many um, mm-hmm. because even even as it is I'm very much scratching the surface I guess um, so yes countries that are probably we'd say still struggling to um, get all children into school um, which in a way I you know, often revisit that is that a good goal and I suppose I always come back to well yes schools aren't perfect but um, it's pretty good, I think. I think it's a fairly noble aim to get for every child to have the chance to at least, you know, complete basic education to be able to read, write, and think. Um, and a lot of countries are struggling with particularly getting, you know, something reaching out to children in rural areas and children with different language backgrounds and those sorts of things. So, so what is the criticism that. against that? So you say you're trying to get as many children as possible into schools, mm. but that that doesn't necessarily seem like a, an unproblematic goal. For me, I can't see the problem with that. Could you explain what the criticism is? Or um, I suppose there's two aspects. The one that I probably won't go into because other people could talk about it better is the whole question of, of, of the d- I mean, development. This is, this is not a podcast uh, for yeah, expert. Yeah. This is a yeah. podcast for yeah. opinions. I'm happy to hear uh, yes. the argument. Okay, so one side of it is the broader questions of whether, whether aid and development are a good thing um, in terms of 
building uh, yeah, independence and dependence and those those sorts of questions. Um, to me, I probably unfairly a little bit distanced myself from those discussions in as far as I've always been very sort of sector-focused, education-focused, and um, I feel that in, in a way education is where we will get that um, gradual less dependence on aid, so I suppose I... I hold on to that. In, in terms of actually whether it's a good thing to have this universal idea of compulsory education where every child should be in a classroom is, is maybe more an interesting one, I think, to me. And I think that I suppose I come back to, well, yes, I'd rather countries had laws where there could be alternative options and for parents to educate their children. But when you come back to countries where few parents can read and write, um, uh, yeah, so it's to me it's really about the, the, the role of the state and the extent then to which the state inter interferes or, or determines the content of education, which of course is very political. And yeah, very this sort of independence argument, like writ small and then writ large, that parents should have the right to educate their children outside of schools and then the, more, the larger thing of whether you should be involved in giving aid to countries mm. who... You know, because it's sort of... I've heard this argument before that it's mm. a colonial enterprise mm. to tell countries that they should be living at a certain standard, that mm. they should have... that they should reflect your civilization in theirs and that's the measure of their value or worth. Mm. Like, all of that seems to me quite esoteric. Yes. Like that's, I, a, that's a really interesting idea. If we're I talking agree. about the yeah. idea of, of, of colonialism and, and all of its negative effects and the histories and so on and so forth, and we're talking about the idea of parents having you know, control over their own children's education rather than ceding it to the state. But if you're talking in real terms... Absolutely. I think it is better to have a kid have access to a school. Yes. Like, I know so many... Like, you sort of have to if you if you say all parents should be able to educate their children however they want to that's great if you're an engaged thoughtful parent but yes. there's plenty of people yeah. with really weird ideas uh, uh, absolutely i i agree and i'm probably in the somewhere in the center in terms of what the state should set and how much freedom there there should be um and I'm very interested in certain mechanisms that you can put in place to to within some sort of structure that in a way guarantees some sort of minimum learning, some key shared outcomes that are kind of agreed by the society, whether or not every parent accepts them, if you like, as a, as a sort of entitlement or right of children. And then where there can be that that localization, that um, you know, opportunities for you know, for some just create creativity, innovation, looking at looking at different you know different ways yeah. of implementing well, it. There's also a counter argument to that, which is that you know, there's a couple of points that I'd make. Really, one mm. is that in order to have any kind of communication between people or between you know organisations, you need to have a common point of reference. Mm. So. I am a comedian, I work in comedy, I push for more diverse lineups. Mm. Um, but all of the people in the lineup are speaking the language that the audience speaks. Yes, yes. They might be using different reference points, yes. but that's because the language allows you to understand or have, you know, 
there's some level of communication happening yes there. yes and you need to have yes. a certain amount of commonality whether you know it's not so there's kind of two two ways of looking at that one mm. is that for a very long time uh, lineups were all white men yes maybe yeah. one yes. woman yes and that was because the people who were booking the lineups were not malicious, but they would book the people who they found funny, who they understood, who, mm. they, who they got, and who they wanted to hang out in the green room with. And then we have more diverse lineups. But at the same time, you need to make the audience laugh. Indeed, and that's your common purpose. And that's the common uh, purpose, yes. and that's, yes. you know, if, yeah. if you are doing something that is too out there, the audience won't laugh. Yes. So you need to lead them... Mm to whatever point mm. you're making. Mm. And there is no limit on the distance mm. you can take an audience. Mm. That is the great thing about comedy. You can take them almost anywhere if you keep them on board, if you keep bringing them back to you and, mm. and having mm. that communication. Mm. And I'm taking my very trivial job and using it as an analogy to your very serious job, <laughs> which is that, you know, in order to have a functioning society, if we're looking at functionality as industrialization which mm. again is a question mm. but then you need people who understand institutions mm. that's what school is mm. that's the good side and the bad side of school is that you're training people to understand institutions mm. and decide whether they want to be in one or not and how to operate inside one inside one and also outside in, in, a, in a sense um well, that you you learn the language yes. of an institution. Y yes, and, and, and that's quite interesting because I think when you're using language, you're maybe not using it in a literal way, but educate, you know, part of yeah. what really interests me in uh, two of the countries I work, Myanmar and Nepal, they both have over 150 actual languages um, that one would very much hope part of education is, is rooted in all of those cultures. We know the, the dangers of language loss, of cultural loss in terms of education's role of actually building knowledge and um, that whole pool of knowledge and ways of looking at the world that's there in those languages. Um, at the same time, how education can bring in those languages of wider communication, as they're called, which might be a national language might be English as an international language that's very strongly desired, but also all the, the languages of literacy, of digital literacy, of all of these, these different um, layers, if you like. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> interest to me how these different... Um, yeah, how education can sort of build, obviously, from the known, but then be bringing or helping to bring people out into these wider concentric circles if you like and then to operate yeah. seamlessly between those um. yeah it's interesting because I'm using language as you say uh, as a proxy for a number of other mm. things for mm. symbols and mm. uh, for other ways that we communicate and other mm. you know working inside systems language is a system for mm. communication but the fact that I'm using mm. the word language to mm. communicate a really broad spectrum of different things is uh reminds me of something that I'm constantly reminded of which is that language is quite imprecise <laughs> yes like, yeah mm, it's mm. really like you, you discover this in comedy all the time it's really gestural like you're mm, sort of mm. you if you get the right grouping of words you can point people in the general direction of an idea mm, mm. if you're lucky <laughs> and if they have you know if they're willing to go with you in that direction yes yes 
and I, I think that's the thing, right, with, with schools, and maybe I'm stretching this metaphor or analogy too far, which is that, of course, that is a system that is flawed, inevitably, as all systems are flawed. Mm. But it's better to be in the room having that conversation than it is to be shut out of that conversation. Than to be outside the tent, so to speak. That's, I suppose, what I come back to when I have these moments of, you know, quest questioning. Well, you know, what... what what am I doing? Is this the best contribution I can make? And I have to come back to, again, being pragmatic. Well, it's what I'm doing. People come back and ask me to help with things. So without um, over-exaggerating that, I hope that means that I'm you know, making these, these small contributions here and there. Um, and yes, and, and I, I suppose part of the irony, going back to this question of the colonial system, if you like, and a lot of systems sort of, if you like... Um, imitated particularly from the British system which was to do with a lot of people in Victorian times coming into the cities and these basic um, education for industrialization um, and then now we have this rote learning system everywhere um, and there have been quite a lot of perhaps misguided attempts to perhaps too quickly push countries away from that into something that's all very free and creative and the idea that everything comes from the child and just as countries are perhaps trying to grapple with that um, in, a, in many western countries we're thinking actually wait a moment you know it's this isn't quite true this doesn't always work better it has to be a balance of what comes from the teacher and what children don't know and you know what what's there that kind of if you like be discovered or, or developed from within and that also is, it's another of these things that's become very polarised in, in education. Yeah, um, we were talking about this last this, night, mm. and I don't normally do this, but I, I would like to kind of return to that discussion or maybe explain it a little bit mm. of, it came up that there is a an issue or something that you were struggling with um, in terms of imposing maybe postmodern ideologies, maybe mm. very modern kind of trendy um, ideas mm. on systems of education in these countries where they might not necessarily apply. So sort of jumping to the end point. Yes, I, I yes, I think that sometimes has happened. Um, yes, both in terms of pedagogy in, in the idea which again it's it's these are things that they're not wrong but they just need so much qualifying and contextualizing so yes the idea of of course if we want active learning and that you want children's minds and brains to be involved rather than switched off um, of course but actually what that means in terms of a class of 60 children and a teacher who's maybe not had very much training and, and experience themselves um, making sure that actually at the end of the day what you're looking at is actually do we see some sort of learning or, or progress and, 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 and make it more iterative if you like and more within the, um, the control of the teacher because what's often happened is that teachers have done these wonderful things on training and they have worked, they go back into the classroom they try them out, they may be not very confident about them, the class goes into chaos, they lose face, um, they they become criticised for not being able to control the class. So all of these, these so things are So can you give me a, a concrete common. example um, of this? Because you're speaking in generalities mm. that you obviously have great experience with, but, you know, I don't 
understand. Yes, okay. So um, an example that's very often was used a lot um, was training for teachers to use group work um, and to move children who are sitting in rows to sit round tables of six um, with the idea, of course, that children learn from it. We know that children do learn from their peers and not only from the teacher at the front, um, that they can help each other and that they have more discourse and discussion. Mm. Um, but even now in many Western countries that particularly did that at the primary age, and obviously for younger children, we're expecting them to have more play-based learning, things like that. But um, even there, sometimes you find that what happens is that the children are grouped all the time, but actually the teacher might still then use the board a lot, and all you get is a lot of children with, with strange necks who are, <laughs> um, who are distracted by each other. So it's not actually thinking what is the actual um, learning reason why we are doing this. And when you actually start to look at that, it really becomes complicated because there may be um, particular activities, for example, say mathematics, where you might actually have a good reason to group them, the children by ability for a particular, or you might sometimes want something where you're very much mixing them, you might sometimes want to you know, just let children sit with their friends, very much depending. So it all comes back to actually understanding what your objective is and then kind of actually understanding what sort of pedagogies will actually meet certain learning objectives. And of course when you unpack that, it actually you actually need teachers to do what they do, in, for example, in Australia, whereas I understand it, there's an outcome-based curriculum, so Australian teachers have to deliver by the end of, you know, the age of seven, these children will be able to do these things. They completely have freedom of how they teach it, how they do that, which books they use. But being eclectic like that um, and mixing your methods and applying it to your learners is, is a very sophisticated um, task. And the risk of teachers doing it too quickly is that they they then struggle and then they just think, then they throw throw away the whole baby and bath water and go back to the textbook and, and reciting from the textbook. Yeah, which so, comes back to again a problem of an inherent problem of all education, which is that you can learn you can learn a fact mm. or a methodology. But a, a better and more useful thing is to learn why that fact or why that methodology, where it's coming from, because that gives you the basis for reasoning and, and extrapolating around it. So, you know, we have children sitting in rows facing the, the blackboard because it keeps their attention focused on one point. Yes. And yes. it, you know, and it enforces a kind of a structure of discipline where the teacher is at the front and so... There's kind of this sim symbolism of authority that is in place. Yes. And yes. then we have children sitting in groups because children learn from each other. Yes. Rather yes. than just saying, this is how a classroom is set up. There is, should be, yes, yes, absolutely. And taking the time to, to, you know, to gradually broaden out the repertoire, um, if you like, and... Um, uh, sort of an increasing, if you like, handover of control and um, and choice to to the teacher, which again comes back to lots of questions about te yeah teachers as professionals as well as opposed to teachers as people who just deliver what they're they're told without it going through, um, and that's a big again a big 
question about research and debates about teachers as reflective practitioners, basically, is the jargon that's used. What does reflective that. practitioner mean? So it mean yes, yeah, so it means that um, you do some practice and reflect on it, and that's and that's all all that is really. Um, but strategies for developing a reflective practitioner um, often are such things as having an ongoing peer mentoring system, opportunities for teachers to have a sort of structured way of observing each other, working on one particular thing at a time, for example, questioning skills or something that they want to um, learn to do better, um, practicing it, reflecting on it. Um, and making time for that. And there's, there's encouraging um, research coming up about the effects of, um, yeah, of, of doing that with teachers. Um, but yeah, and, and going more along a, a gentle pathway, more of a spiral pathway, if you like, in, in terms of how teachers develop and adopt more sophisticated um, methodology, if you like. I mean, yeah, that is incredibly interesting. Um, and Norway's <laughs> plane to go over. Um, yeah, no, that that's really interesting. What what do you think? In that case, is the hardest thing that you have to deal with. What's the what's what's the biggest kind of fight that you have most regularly to do what you do? Ooh, that's very difficult to answer. Um, Without but, jeopardizing yeah. your career. <laughs> ah, well, no, but, but that's an. In, but no, I can sort of say generally because it it is something that's sort of related to that in a way, which is certainly not um, restricted to education or to developing countries or to aid agencies, but it's it's how to avoid making these things happen by having too much bureaucracy, too many structures, too many checklists, um, and instead thinking about what could be, I don't know the answer to this, but what could be some very sim simple iterative tools to really meet the realities that I see and of course many people see and work with every day of a rural school um, far from the nearest road, with perhaps one or two teachers, um, children perhaps from different language backgrounds, uh, children who are being pulled out of school to work in the fields, and sometimes, you know, even uh, say with even if we're going with something fairly simple, but even looking at pedagogy or going in the frameworks about, well, are you making sure you're treating boys and girls equally? What are you doing to bring the disabled children into school? What are you, do all th you, know, what are you doing about children with different languages? All of these things which tend to mount up and multiply, and they're all, they're all good things, but we don't seem to have an alternative way of addressing those than, than introducing another, another checklist or something normative where... Um, you then use and when you actually apply it to a school or they start to perhaps look and well what what could we done and what could we do next that you just give up before you start because it's too huge um yeah if if you are and, and this is again this is a really interesting argument right that mm. being able to worry about 
I, I don't want to say small problems mm. because these are not small problems. Mm. But issues of gender, issues mm. of disability, issues mm. of racial difference and mm. hierarchies are not small problems. Mm. But they are, uh, to a certain extent, mm. they are luxury problems. Mm. Which feels, it feels wrong to say that. And I don't know, I, I have to work this idea out more in my own head. Mm. But if the problem that you are dealing with is a kind of a survival level problem, mm. which mm. is children are either in school or they're out of school, mm. they're being pulled out to work in the fields, mm. they don't even necessarily speak the language mm. that would allow them to understand what mm. is being taught in the school, mm. these kind of entry level problems, mm. it's sort of... I don't know where it fits in with ideas about intersectionality and intersectionalism, but it, it feels like you have to get to a certain point of privilege or luxury or control mm. or order, and then you can start focusing on those problems. Yes. Or, or should they be built in from the ground up? Yes. Can they be built in from the ground up without becoming just this overwhelming mass of you have to change everything about everything you've ever thought before I, I that's exactly yes I think that's a very very good way of looking at it and yes exactly is what what I think about a lot in a way because there probably are some some things that can be there but it's just then who who, who decides and how yes and how far should they be if you like set into some sort of minimum standard that then a school or a teacher is is judged by um, one of the one of the areas that I think has has been quite successful and is very important is something like um, uh, campaigns just to stop physical punishment in schools um, because there is such strong evidence that then the way that that's applied will be will be very discriminatory against certain groups um, and will actually stop kids from staying in, in school and that there's particularly young, younger ones of course um, so sort of but, trying to limit the damage of inequalities rather yeah. than set out to erase inequalities entirely to, to it, it sort of limits the damage and at least sets some sort of basic parameters of respect and begin you know maybe perhaps just things that get help teachers to just think of things from the perspectives of the the children and just um, some basic things to get get people working together but perhaps without going into all of this analysis of this over categorization if you like which of course can um, well there is a can exaggerate difference anyway yeah I think maybe maybe I'm not sure, but this mm. is having thought about it and having just spoken about it with you now mm. and having articulated it. Um, I'm going to wait for this plane to pass. Mm. Um, that it is... Maybe, maybe it's not a luxury problem. Mm. So having said... Having said it was a luxury problem, I intersectionality, mm. I take that back... Mm. But maybe the categorization of it is. So to say, treat everybody yes. in the school, yes. no matter what their gender, race, level of ability, mm. background, mm. economic... If you say, treat everybody the same, mm. or as equally as possible, mm. 
given their individual characteristics. Mm. Mm. That's something that you can establish, and that's one principle. That's one check on it. That's one checklist. You know, that is one box on a checklist. Yes. Rather than sort of attempting to implement strategies for individual types of hierarchy or ability or prejudice. Yes, I think that's exactly where I where I've come to with it. Um, and differentiating differentiating what happens maybe at a higher level when you're looking across an education sector or across an area of a country and you're preparing an intervention and you do analysis where you might have okay academics coming in. And then I think we, we have moved a long way from somebody doing a gender analysis, somebody doing an economist doing the poverty analysis, to this idea of it be having to look multidimensionally and then you're understanding, well, you know, girls dropping out at a certain time in school, perhaps because of early marriage or because they're going to help within the home, or boys in urban areas very often dropping out because they, they want to go and be on the streets with their friends or they go and work in the market. And, you, and it's, it is very useful to pick up those patterns but sometimes, and interestingly, I had a discussion last week when I was talking with some colleagues in the same field about a, an upcoming conference looking at inclusive education, which again, again would be to raise awareness and capacity of policymakers and, and people at a more senior level in the systems. But it, it we got into not not exactly an argument, but but a um, certainly a, a sense of a, a different idea of well whether this should be really. That we have a session on, you know, on all of these different categories, but what I feel often happens, and it it it's possibly also maybe not laziness is is not quite fair, but maybe it's a disjunct between people who are looking at that area and more at the policy area and actual technicians who actually have to sit there in the classroom and teach the kids. So it's maybe just that common disjunct between those groups of people about well okay it's, it's, it may be useful for certain of us to understand that what does that actually mean in terms of a tool for you know the grade one teacher in rural Nepal um, well also I think we are just absolute bandits for using the lens of the technology which we have most recently been given mm, mm, so mm. You know, the philosophy or the technology or the religion that we is dominating mm. Mm. the culture at the time mm. Mm. is almost always the one that we think about. Yes. So, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, we have observed that gender inequality plays a role in mm. these school attendance numbers. Mm. Mm. And it's another thing to say, mm. you know, this particular thing that I've been talking about in my PhD is mm. the thing that teachers should be focusing on in their classrooms. Mm. Yes. Or yes. this this yes. thing that is an issue for my culture mm. must necessarily be an issue for your culture. Yeah. When it may not be. It's a, it is a kind of a colonial imposition of your concerns over their concerns. It, it can be. And yes, I suppose you can get past that to some extent by the way that you might be involved in that sort of research and analysis and testing that you are at least getting to the right issues but still yes but still there's that next level of actually yeah what's what's the concern of um of the primary school teacher and my the example I think of is always the cholesterol hypothesis Mm. And I think it's a good analogy to the way that people use monetary outcomes to assess mm. value in a mm. community. Mm. So 
Tell me about it. We were really good. We had really good measurement for cholesterol quite early. Mm. So we knew how to measure high cholesterol. We knew how to measure low cholesterol. Eventually, we knew how to measure small and large particles, whatever, what are molecules, big cholesterol, LDL and HDL. Oh, yes, yes. So we, they, the bad that, one. we had a really good measurement tool for assessing that. Mm. And the moment we were able to measure it, people said, well, it must be really important. We can, we can measure it really yeah. precisely. Yes. So yes. we can say that if you have high cholesterol, mm. you're more likely to have a heart attack. Mm. And mm. you have low cholesterol. And it turned out that that is not true. Mm. Mm. It's, not, it's not a fact. No, no. But they no. wanted mm. to draw out whatever possible correlations they could have. And that the you know there are certain markers that are raised when you have certain conditions but that that's co- correlation or causation they haven't figured it out yeah yes and in that way we use money because money is very easy to measure mm. and it's sort of associated with other things that we can observe but can't mm. measure mm. as well mm. yeah yes but we might be better off measuring other things or yes. figuring out better measures for other things that are essentially more important there are very few people that say, would say money is more important than happiness yes to your face yes but because you can measure money and you cannot measure happiness yeah. you will always make the trade towards the thing that you can more precisely yes and assume that it's all to do with financial security and assess yeah, yeah level of wealth yes 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 I'm sure that's part of it and um, again I I Yes, coming back to the the kind of primary teacher example, what's um, would it be more helpful to help teachers? Again, I don't. Again, monitoring can also become an obsession, and measurement can become an obsession. But at least to learn how to measure their pupils' progress better and assess their progress on a few few literacy and numeracy outcomes. Now, of course, that again can make things very narrow but that would be such a you know such a triumph and an achievement in many schools to to at least do that I sometimes think well why not do that and then you know make sure then you're picking out if you notice that there are difference differences between the obvious groups that you have there so girls and boys or perhaps there'll be different um, ethnic groups or children with different home languages things like that and why not just focus on that um and in in a way, it also feels perhaps less patronising to me because the other thing I worry about a lot of these these things is it's also it is also assuming that all the, you're looking at this diversity, calling it oh this lovely diversity, but you're often actually looking at and this is you know this is the disadvantage, this is the the vulnerable group, this is the marginalised one, and um, uh, actually certainly in the UK. There's a lot of frustration with schools and with policies that put so much attention on the making sure that we're equal and fair and the inputs and the the you know the the ideas of positive discrimination if you like or and um, you know so much so that a lot of um, particularly Afro Afro Caribbean communities are sending their children to Saturday schools where there's the rigorous discipline and the academic because actually to me the real inequality is the inequality of outcome and of opportunity and ability to actually avail yourself of your education and qualifications and I think that's that's also perhaps what's got a bit too lost because we've become so obsessed perhaps with all of these things and processes need to happen otherwise you know these children won't have a chance but actually perhaps they perhaps they will you know if you just really focus on how how to actually teach 
these these core subjects and ideas. If you're giving um, people the same equipment. Yes. And it, that's the interesting thing, which was that that seemed to be the general movement was mm. towards giving everyone the same starting blocks, mm. you know, these principles of enlightenment principles, which are now sort of being seen as quite outdated, quite colonial, that if you give everyone the same starting blocks, mm. that's, that is fairness. And then people said, well, wait a minute, we're not yes. all being given the same starting yes. blocks. And the answer to that, or the, the, the latching onto that idea mm. that we're not all being given the same starting blocks mm. seems to be the, almost the end of the conversation now. That's that's right, and and although absolutely, I mean, it is it is true that it's not it's not just giving the same starting blocks in terms of maybe looking at blocks of different heights in some way, but the I suppose the issue for me with education is that it, I mean, so many so many studies seem to show that the main starting block is actually outside of the system, um, so and and. How far can the system make up for that? Um, and to me, yes, maybe it's maybe we could just do a little bit more with, okay, a, a extra time, extra extra support, um, but raising expectation perhaps as well, um, and that's what seems to have happened in schools where you get outlying schools that where children of, say, very low socioeconomic status or whatever, or high levels of children who don't have English as their first language when they enter the school, or children even coming in at age 10, 11, you know, and, and still school those schools that are outliers in terms of achievement. Um, it very often is, is down, g g going back to that expectation and that discipline um, I mean, for sure, I'm sure an ethos of respect uh, within that, because that's part of it. But perhaps less so than worrying, too, you know, worrying too much about the in, the individual disadvantages of all of those children. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm probably yeah, well, getting confused in my well, own no, argument. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I think it's a really good point. I think that you know, you uh, the game is if the game is rigged, you get a choice. Mm to you know stay in the game and try and make as good a deal of it as you can mm. or flip the board in and run away mm. smash everything down to absolute kindling and rebuild from the beginning mm. which mm. will take time mm. and energy mm. and maybe impossible <laughs> given human <laughs> nature mm. and so at that point then it just becomes a matter of which discriminations are acceptable <laughs> within a framework if we accept that people are always going to have discrimination because that's the way we work yes and I suppose also maybe that comes back to I th think and there's been a lot of there's a lot of Discussions on you know, radio, television programs, books about this now about um, about the the how far do you actually police people's opinions and um, you know that that to me yes if if you can make sure schools are places where there isn't um, I know it sounds awful to say it's not overt I don't mean that it's therefore covert but you're making sure that there aren't actually 
um, things being said or done that actually directly discriminate or disadvantage without actually trying to worry too much about well, what's going on in somebody's head because at the end of the day, yes, and we all make judgments and sometimes we're actually just making normal judgments about people we like or don't like so much and it's very, it's, it's just, it just can become, I think, very, again, too, too cumbersome and make it too... Almost a fearful atmosphere for for teachers if they have to become hypersensitive to um, to policing any possible uh, breach, if you like, of particularly in, in the context of dealing with these kind of more survival level issues. Quite quite possibly, and also I suppose sometimes I think. We also need to remember that children are children, um, and of course, yes, they come from their their whatever background and whatever. And of course, we all have prejudices or things we just don't know or haven't thought about before. So you've got the teachers in that position, and and they're, they're all part of that society as well as they should be, um, and 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 children coming from from that. So maybe just being a little bit more gentle and forgiving perhaps as well and uh, not not setting certain sorts of what we might say wrong ways of, you know perhaps wrong ways of thinking or behaving towards each other as as on a pedestal as sort of like almost being completely beyond beyond the pale if you like yeah there, there is an arrogance to that mm. as well to assuming that people should know what you know yeah even if mm. you think you are right even mm. if you think you're morally right mm. Mm. It's, it's the idea that heathens go to hell even if they've never heard of God. Yeah, yeah. And they yes. downgraded that to purgatory. Socrates yes, is in yes, purgatory because yes. he never heard of God. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that. It's, it is that kind of thinking. Yeah, yes. You know, particularly when it comes to first world politics. Yes. That, yes. you know, Clementine Ford, who's a very famous feminist Australian, mm. was told that she shouldn't spend Christmas with her father because he's very right wing. <laughs> and that seems to me a complete misunderstanding then, of yes. how any kind of conversation happens, how any kind of human relationship works. But uh, if all of your alliances yes. are opinions based, uh, 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 absolutely. And uh, yes, and again, op- opinion. And yet, you know, any um, any traditional religion. I mean, I think probably for good reasons. Though, you know, the the the, the value of family. Is is strong, and wherever that came from, I mean, it you know, as a family, as a basic unit of society. So the idea, you know, and many cults are indeed one of the cl- things that classifies a lot of cults is the you're either in or out. Pe- yeah. Well, and drawing people away from their families, and their families are bad, and 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 uh, splitting up families is quite a is quite a story. Just this sort of popped into my yeah, head. Yeah, you, 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 you love bomb. You love that, bomb. Um, That's the tactic. You love bomb. You yeah. say we love you. We love you. You're yeah. perfect. You yes. belong with us. Yes. And then you separate them from their family. They don't understand. They mm. don't get it. They're evil. Yes. They're dirty. Yeah. They're wicked. Yeah. Because. And, because well, most most of us have families where, of course, they're not they're not perfect, and it's very you know, and, and you feel you know more than your parents, or um, think, yeah, or whatever whatever the the dynamic is. Um, I've always thought the best tool against extremism of any mm. kind is to have as many competing alliances as possible, as mm. an individual, that you can't, you know, you can't have. Mm. You can't be a blind nationalist mm. if you 
are part of a, an international bird watching group. Yeah, yeah. If you know yes. what I mean? Yes. Yeah, that yes. if you and then you're also part of a you know religious knitting group, but you're also yeah. part of a secular handball group. Like all of this is kind of weird, weird activities based stuff, which people don't necessarily have time for. Mm. But that's what I mean. If you think of yourself as allied to as many different groups as possible. Yes, I I agree. And then that comes down to I suppose that then a much that we're not the sum of all of those groups. And I suppose that's the other thing, going back to the idea of you analysing, well, this person is a girl and they're from this race and this, this, this. But actually, is this actually how we define ourselves or how we deeply feel ourselves to be, you know? Yes. Whether we come from a religious or a, another sort of tradition, philosophical tradition. But I think, you know, most of us have that deep feeling that these these are they're not even aspects that there is some sort of integrated whole that is is beyond these things and and not if you like perfect for any one of us or we may although we may feel we're on some sort of journey if you like to. yeah but you're not and the, within the, that basis why would you judge your father for having a different political view you know well, then you, the arrogance you can argue breaks with him about is, that but yes. you also love him yeah 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 and that's why i think sort mm. of ally my mm. what's developing in mm. my head is this idea of alliances mm. rather than identities mm. Yeah, that yes. you know, you have an affiliation mm. with a particular group. Mm. You feel part of that group, mm. but that group is not who you are. Mm. Mm. And I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is a white guy, mm. and he was saying, "You will never take from me the privilege of not having to care. Mm. Like mm. I'll treat people like people, or mm. all of these mm. arguments can happen. Mm. You know, about whatever level of rights." Mm. Uh, being offended on mm. whatever level mm. from mm. real genuine mm. you know whatever it is mm. uh, physical rights mm. freedom mm -hmm. to mm. being called the thing you want to be called yeah. or having yes. certain things acknowledged about you yeah he says you know i'm never going to give up my right not, not to, to care have to, yes not yeah not to and i think to. that mm. that pri that's the, the fundamental question there is a question of privilege mm. Mm. and what, what privilege is. Mm. For me, I think there's a lot of people who would say to my friend, mm. take his privilege away. Mm. Take away that privilege not to care mm. because he should have to care mm. because the rest mm. of us have to care. Mm. But my inclination or my kind of mm. gut feeling, mm. and it could be wrong, mm. would be we should all get that. We should all not have to care. We should get to that point, yes. You know, take that yeah. away as a privilege yeah. by giving that privilege to everybody. Yes. That's the direction we should move in. We should all move towards a place where we don't have to care. Uh, yes, indeed. That, that is yeah. a better world yes. to me than a world yes. where everybody has to care. Yeah, uh, yes, indeed. Then we can care because about it, other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because, yes, because that, that doesn't, doesn't matter because, yeah, because people are not experiencing that sharp um, inequality. Yes. Yes, no, I think that's that's true. And the question of how we get there, and it's it's. I mean, I'm sure we've probably probably all been there, where you think you're perhaps acting in a way which is sort of quite enlightened, even in just you know, maybe having these discussions in a casual way with people who are thinking differently, and then actually think actually this person isn't just part of my project, and um, <laughs> you know that that also, you know. So again, it's just that feeling of how. Can we do that at any level without simply becoming patronising or should we 
still try to find ways to engage in ways that if you yeah in, challenge challenge people and hopefully challenge ourselves in order yeah hopefully to move along in the right direction which kind of brings me back towards the end of this conversation and wrapping it up mm. that it is a matter i think mm. of giving people the tools mm. to have conversations mm. and to develop their ideas mm. because it is only through exposure and conversation and the ability to access different arguments and different ways of thinking and the different tools to take them and examine them for yourself and integrate them or discard them depending on whether they suit your personal feeling. Mm. Mm. That's the only way anyone ever changes their mind or ever learns. You know, you don't you don't suddenly change the way you think unless you're challenged yes and you are never challenged unless you have the tools to engage with things that are outside your immediate scope absolutely and then perhaps going back to the reflective practitioner the time to just reflect on it and just to try or just let in one idea or new way of thinking and practice it apply it test it and um yes not have to sort of have have this huge range of things jumping on you at once and oh you're you're a terrible person um or a terrible teacher (laughs) and with that yes with that where can people find you online Mm. or can they find you online or you're sort of an anonymous benefactor oh I'm a bit anonymous, really, to be honest. Okay, yes. well, um, let's leave yeah. that there. You yeah. can send me an email, I'll forward it to her. Um, yes. If you have any comments on this conversation. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. 
And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day.